You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway Church. My name is Matt. I'm a GC leader here as well as serving on our worship and production team. Excited to read scripture. Today we'll be reading from Genesis 46, verses 2 through 4. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one under the seat in front of you. I'll give you a minute to get there. Okay, Genesis 46, verses 2 through 4. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Morning. If we haven't, thank you. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Logan Thompson. I'm the student minister here. It's an honor to serve in that role, so thank you for letting me do that. Uh, I know we just prayed, but I'm a big prayer guy. You can ask anybody. Um, So let's go ahead and pray one more time. Um, If you would even just close your eyes and bow your heads. Uh, We're embodied souls. What we do with our body matters. Um, And even if if you're comfortable, I'd have have you put your palms up uh, on your lap, just in a posture of reception. Only if you're comfortable. If you don't do it, I won't tell anybody. But let's just, uh, in that posture, whatever you're comfortable in, just take five slow, deep breaths. In that same posture, just rehearse a piece of scripture to yourself where God says, be still and know that I am God. It's his invitation for you to stop running around like you're in control and surrender to the fact that he's in control. So be still and know that I am God. Would you just pray for yourself in this posture that God would open your heart to his word this morning? Would you pray the same thing for the person to your right and to your left? Would you pray for me that I would teach God's word in a way that's helpful to you and that honors Jesus? So Father, we just entrust today to you. Would the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight? And would we leave here knowing you more, having encountered you, And would you help us to respond in faith? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What were you thinking? Why didn't you call me? These two questions came to me across the room from one of my mentors. I had just been relaying to him a story of my wife and I having a really crazy experience driving from Dallas to Albuquerque. And on the way, two of our tires blew out. We were stranded on the side of the road for eight hours before the tow truck arrived. And uh, God actually provided in some cool ways, but I'm, I'm telling him this story and I'm noticing his body language is not what I expect it to be. And he says, what were you thinking? Why didn't you call me? I could have helped you. It's like, oh, that's kind of nice. He said, do you realize how many sticky situations I've been in? Do you know I have people in Amarillo? I know a ton of them. I could have called them. I could have helped you. I was like, oh, well, yeah. Like when you say it like that, I, I guess I am sorry that I didn't reach out. 
And he says, I want you to make me a promise that the next time you get into a situation like this, you'll call me, you'll talk to me. I said, sure, I can do that. So I left that meeting and lo and behold, a few months later, my wife and I get into one of those situations. The IRS wanted a little bit more money than we had uh, when we did not plan for that. And man, as the, yeah, as the husband, I, I felt embarrassed that I had led my family that way. I felt shame about it. And I called my parents talking to them and they're like, well, we can give you a small loan. I was like, that's so kind. I was like, I don't think like just something was like clicking in my head. I was like, no, that doesn't sound right. And then I remember this conversation with my mentor. And so I actually went to him and a group of other men who've been pouring into me. And I said, hey, you asked that I would come to you in my time of need. This is my time of need. And they took some time and responded that they were gonna pay our entire debt to the IRS for us. Just as a gift of love. I mean, they were so wise in the way that they spoke to me about money, helped me see things and understood what was happening. And the reason that I tell you that story is because today we are covering Genesis 46 through 48. And the main idea of those three chapters is this, God is our wise and loving provider. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write that at the top. God is our wise and loving provider. Before we get started, let's get some context. Uh, in the book of Genesis, up to this point, God is redeeming a broken and sinful family. He's entering into them, into relationship with them with specific promises to make them into a great people, to be their God, to give them a land, to bless them. And ultimately through this one family, God will bless all families in the world. And so at this point in our story of Genesis 46, there is a patriarch of the family at this point named Jacob or Israel, the two names for the same person. He's had a ton of sons and children. One of his sons was sold into slavery brought by his brothers because they hated him, which is a pretty intense family situation. But he is sold into slavery into Egypt and through God's sovereignty, he's risen to actually become basically the prime minister. He's number two in line only to Pharaoh. No one else can tell him what to do in Egypt. And mainly he gets this role because there are seven years of feasting and seven years of famine that God has told him about through prophecy. So he's leading Egypt through a time of famine when God brings Joseph, which is his name, his brothers back to him to get food in the famine. God uses it to bring reconciliation and Joseph extends forgiveness to his brothers. More than that, he says, hey, go back home because the famine's not done. You need to get dad and all of our siblings, bring them down to Egypt so you can survive this famine. And today we will see the main theme that God is our wise and loving provider woven through the text in four specific ways. For chapter 46, we'll see our first point, And that is this, God is our wise and loving provider. Therefore, we must seek him in the face of change. Uh, right before our story picks up, you have to know that Jacob the patriarch, the leader of the family is facing significant tension and longing at the same time. There's this idea that his son, who he thought was dead, is still alive in a far off country. And the famine has got to be like, he's looking in the pantry, there's nothing there. If they stay in the land, is that a death sentence? But he's feeling tension at the same time because he has a family history of his dad and his grandpa doing some pretty dumb stuff when they go down to Egypt. 
His dad actually was in a famine and God said to him, I know there's a famine, don't go down to Egypt. So these two things, a desire to be with his son, but a desire not to spoil the promises of God and be dumb down in Egypt, like he doesn't know what he's gonna do. Let's see what happens as we read Genesis 46, verse one. So Israel, that is Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So Jacob slash Israel, he's decided to go. He's gonna move towards Egypt, but he's gonna make an important stop along the way. Jacob needs to confirm he's not burning down his family's history of covenant faithfulness to God. Well, they've already been unfaithful, but you know what I mean. So he does the right thing and he seeks God. He comes to God first. He prepares to worship God at Beersheba and he has to be wondering, is God gonna let me see Joseph? Or do I have to stay in the land? Is he going to rebuke me for leaving or is he gonna give me the green light to go? We see God's response in verses two through four, which says this. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God responds to Jacob in three ways. First way is this, he identifies himself. He says, I am the God, the God of your dad, Jacob. This is no new God or false God, somewhere you've been tricked. It's the same God that told your dad not to go down to Egypt. And the second things he gives after his identity is clarity. God says for Jacob, you in this case, I do actually want you to go down to Egypt. Actually there in Egypt, I'm gonna bring part of my promise to fulfillment. You will go from a family to a nation in the country of Egypt. And finally, he gives comfort. He says, I will be with you the whole time. It will be a temporary stay in Egypt. I'll be the one to bring you back here to this land. And oh yeah, one more thing, Joseph, he'll be by your side when you die. This encounter with God relieves the tension that Jacob must have felt in his heart. He knows now what he is doing is right. And we'll see Jacob and all his family listed as they head down to Egypt. So Jacob operates in wisdom by seeking God in the midst of change. You have to think that Jacob, as he was headed towards Beersheba, was recalling God's faithfulness, was recalling God's provision, was recalling God's kindness, and that prompted Jacob to seek God, making sure that the source of this potential new provision in Egypt was indeed from God and not from somewhere else. Jacob's example here is one that you and I should follow today. When we are faced with potential changes in the direction of our life, we must turn to God and ask, is this coming from you? Or am I making this up? Is this from some other source? Now, typically, if you and I are honest, this is not how we respond to change. They're kind of two ends of the spectrum. On one side one, some of us would have stayed in Canaan. We wouldn't have stepped a toe over that boundary line. But worst of all, we wouldn't have really even prayed about it. 
Partly because we don't like change, but mainly because we like control too much. On the other hand, some of us would have started marching immediately to Egypt. First flight out, thank you very much. We wouldn't have had a group discussion. We're headed to go see Joseph. But worst of all, we wouldn't really have asked God about it in prayer. Partly because we like change, but mainly because we like control too much. Instead of digging our heels in or buying the next direct flight out of town, followers of Jesus should seek the face of God when change comes our way. Of course, we should seek wise counsel from the church and our community around us. But in addition to that, I can't think of a better idea or a better way to handle a fork in the road than to get alone with God to cry out to him in prayer and song, looking to his word, ultimately having this posture and question, God, you have always been my wise and loving provider. Is this from you? Now, a few caveats to that. First, he won't always call us into ease uh, or comfort. I have a friend who felt clarity from the Lord to take this new job direction, and it was awful. Like it was a hard thing that they went through. We're just trusting, waiting that at the end of our life, we'll look back and my friend will see God's faithfulness and the reasoning behind it. I mean, even Jesus, he was sent to earth to suffer on our behalf. So just because suffering or pain is in the direction God is calling us to doesn't mean that we should back out. And the second nuance or caveat is this, God is not obligated to always give us a clear answer but he clearly desires us to come to him. Think of Proverbs 3, five through six. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. God loves us and he provides for us. He wants us to come to him because he cares for us. He doesn't want you or I to operate like spiritual orphans who have to scheme and scrap and wheel and deal to get ahead in this life. He's a good dad who wants his kids to come talk to him about it first. On a practical note, I think a great great way to surrender control to our God is to pray the Lord's prayer every day. And when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, we do it without crossing our fingers. We entrust ourselves to our good dad. And we let go of control. Why do we do this? Because God is our wise and loving provider. Therefore, we should seek him in the face of change. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Would it not be foolish to seek him in that and ask, is this really from you, God? This theme of God's provision is seen from a different angle in point two, which is this, God is our wise and loving provider. Therefore, we should walk in gratitude. We'll pick up the story in Genesis 46, 28, when Jacob and his caravan have just arrived in Egypt. I'll read it for us. This is Jacob. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. They came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept a good long while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
That's pretty beautiful. You can imagine that the father and the son had no idea that this day would ever come. And yet here it is. Jacob and Joseph are reconnected. After this tearful embrace, Joseph turns to his family and says, I've got a plan for us in our time in Egypt. We'll pick up the story in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock, even from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph's brothers are gonna agree with him on this plan. They go to see Pharaoh. They request the land and Pharaoh says, yes. He even says, by the way, do you have anyone that can watch my sheep? Like you can imagine after this that Joseph and his family are doing the Macarena on the way back to Goshen. They, they got Goshen, y'all. Like, can you, do you understand Goshen? Okay, for maybe not, there was no applause. Um, Goshen's a big deal. Um, maybe we should talk about that. Um, this is maybe a helpful comparison. Goshen is to Israel what Lakeside High School is to Microsoft. In the late 1960s, Lakeside High School purchased a teletype Model 30 computer. They opened it up to students for independent study. So if you wanted to stay late, if you wanted to come on weekends, if you wanted to work even into the night, you could. Now at a time like this in the 1960s, most graduate programs at colleges did not have this type of computer. But at Lakeside High School, eighth graders could have it. And that's pretty significant when you think about the eighth grade student who poured hours upon hours into using the computer, learning how to program it. And his name, as you probably guessed, was Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, the computer software company. As of today, Microsoft is worth over $1 trillion. And I did say that with a T. Bill Gates said to one of the graduating classes from his alma mater, if there had been no lakeside, there would be no Microsoft. Lakeside gave him a rare opportunity that literally no other school had in the country. The land of Goshen is like that for the Israelites. It was a rare setup that basically no one else had. And this allows Jacob and his family to flourish in the middle of a famine. It was a fertile land. Goshen was also on the edge of Egypt, which gave you kind of a double blessing. You're close enough to Pharaoh in case you need his army to protect you, but you're far enough away from the main cities that you're not culturally affected. You can have your own culture, your distinct people. Also with it being on the edge of the land, kind of closer to Canaan, the promised land, it would make for a really good, a quick escape if you ever needed to have an exodus or something. It's a pretty, pretty good spot. Joseph, or Joseph sees Goshen and they receive this as an amazing blessing. Jacob's family gets the best real estate in Egypt and you better believe they walked in deep gratitude as they walked through brown lands of famine but came home into green pastures and food. 
Chapter 47, 27 says it this way, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. As Egyptians are literally having to sell all that they have to get bread, Joseph's family is gaining possessions, eating for free, and having tons of babies. How does this translate to Christians today? Pretty straightforward, you should walk in gratitude. We should walk in gratitude towards our God. God has provided for us beyond comparison. We have been given Christ himself. Our identity in the language of the New Testament is that we are in Christ. We have been forgiven of our sins for free. You didn't pay a penny for it, but you got all the reward for Jesus's work. You have every blessing in the heavenly places. The boundary lines for you and for me have fallen in wonderful places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. So let's act like it. Grouchy people are terrible evangelists, by the way. The world's used to bitterness. It's not used to grateful people. In many ways, Joseph reflects Jesus, who walks us into the rich land of life with God, and we live in his kingdom forever. Our deepest needs have been met by our Father. Therefore, we don't strut and act like it was our deeds. We don't give in to bitterness or grouchiness. God gave us this gift. Let's be grateful. Now, I say all that with certainty, but I know for some of us in here today, this past season has not stirred gratitude in your heart. You have tasted pain or suffering. Grief that you didn't expect. And so to hear me say to you, be grateful, that's some hard medicine to take. Say a few things. First, if that is you, I'm so sorry. The dark night of the soul is not, it's nothing I wish on my worst enemy. It's a lonely place and I'm sorry you're there. If I was in your community, I'd probably just wanna sit with you for a good long while, probably cry a good bit and not say a word. Then after a long time, what I'd wanna encourage you with is something true about you. And you might not be able to hear it now, but I'd ask you to just take it and put it in your pocket for when you can. I'd say this, while it is true and sorrowful that you are experiencing suffering, at the same time, you are experiencing your suffering in Christ. Your world can be crumbling, but at the end of the day, you are loved, you are cherished, you are chosen. God will wipe away all of our tears away one day. And in the meantime, your identity and your forgiveness is eternally safe. You will ultimately be okay. Friends, our God is wise and he's a loving provider. Therefore, we should walk in gratitude. Our theme will continue into point three, where we now see how this provision we have received from God spreads to those around us. This is point three. God is our wise and loving provider. Therefore, we should wisely provide for the needs of others. If you turn with me to chapter 47, verse 13, 
Joseph is going to be overseeing the distribution of the grain during the famine. I'll read verse 13 for us. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine in the land was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Let's just pause there. Can you imagine what it would be like to experience a famine? Egypt and Canaan are completely out of food and everyone's coming to Joseph. Imagine the lines. Now you and I may have, maybe we've camped outside of REI for a garage sale or stood in line for tickets at Broadway in New York, or maybe you've just endured the DMV. Each of those lines has their own atmosphere, you know what I'm saying? But they all get a little tense when you try to cut. Imagine that vibe cranked up by the heat of an Egyptian sun and you're not waiting to go sit in an air-conditioned room, you're waiting to get food because you're starving. These are the people that Joseph is seeing day after day coming to him for food. How will he interact with them? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was spent in all the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. To summarize the rest of it, Joseph basically enters into a barter system with these people. Since they don't have money to purchase food, they first trade their livestock in and Joseph will give them food for a year. At the end of that year, they still don't have any grain and they still don't have any money. So then they essentially become indentured servants. They give their lives and their land to Pharaoh. They'll get grain in return. And as a deal, all of the yields or the profits, one-fifth goes to Pharaoh, four-fifths they get to keep. So essentially all of Egypt is to be owned by Pharaoh or mastered by Pharaoh, except for Pharaoh's priests and those Israelites over in Goshen. Now you may be thinking, hold the phone. Did Joseph just trick all these people into selling themselves and their land so that he could get them under the thumb of Pharaoh? Does that feel wrong? Like what's going on? Well, a few things. First, if we read verse 19, it was actually the people of Egypt's own idea. To them, this is something that just needed to happen. The second thing is what other option would they have had at the time? There's no welfare system. And actually any heartburn we feel about the situation of the destitute not being cared for is because you and I have been shaped by the prophets of the latter half of the Old Testament. But Joseph is operating under Egypt. He's not operating in Israel. This is the options that they would have had. The next thing is that contextually for that time in that region, Joseph's contract with them was a fair price, if not generous. 20% in Mesopotamia, kings often demanded 40%, even 60. Finally, the people interpret this whole situation as kindness. Read verse 25. And they said, this is the people talking to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. 
Joseph is shown to have been very wise in the way he provides for the needs of these people who were not his family. They weren't from his home country, but he still extends them mercy and meets their needs. All of Egypt, again, is under the servanthood and mastery of Pharaoh, except for Joseph's family and the priests. And if you take a moment and think about how Joseph oversaw storehouses full of grain for seven years in a famine, can you imagine the amount of faith that that brother walked in? Like, first off, he refused to adopt the scarcity mindset that has to accompany a time of famine. I'll bet that more than once, Joseph saw people fighting in the street over a bag of food. Do you think as the years dragged on and you had 50 storehouses full of grain and then 40 storehouses full of grain and then 30 storehouses and 20, that it might've been tempting to hold on a little bit tighter to the grain? Do you guys remember getting toilet paper during COVID? (laughs) Walking to Costco, even if you thought COVID was fake, you walked faster to the toilet paper section. And when we got there, there was no chit chat. It was strangely quiet and there was this suppressed panic as people grabbed bundles and put it in the cart. It was just a weird part of Costco, a weird part of your your life and mine. Joseph didn't give in to that fear. Joseph probably saw people freaking out about food all day long, but he walks in faith because God is his wise and loving provider. He also knows that God is loving, like God's not gonna trick him. The seven years was legit. Like he can give in such a way that at the end of seven years, food will return to Egypt. How does this apply to you and me? Well, I think we should follow the example of Joseph, who was so convinced that God is our wise and loving provider that he gave to others. He didn't hoard all of the grain for himself. Practically, I think this means you and I should steward our finances in such a way that we can wisely give to those around us. We don't need to operate in a scarce resources mentality. Doesn't Jesus tell us this in Matthew chapter six? It says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Maybe a question to think about this week is based on your resources, is there someone around you in need that you could bless? If you don't have money to spare, even with a tight budget and every dollar accounted for, be generous with your time and your dinner table. People are lonely. By all means, the biggest treasure you can give away is the gospel. You don't hoard that towards yourself. You can give it away knowing that there is plenty of salvation for everyone who wants it. Jesus has richly supplied that. Let's now look at how God's provision shapes the next generation in point number four. God is our wise and loving provider. Therefore, we must follow his lead as we disciple the next generation. As we read chapter 48 together, we're gonna see three moments where the leaders of this family will show that God and God alone is their true provider. And they will seek to tether the next generation to him and to his ways. At the beginning of 48, Joseph is told of his father's imminent death. And so he takes his sons to say one last goodbye and to receive 
blessing. It's easy to miss, but this is actually act one of an example of raising up the next generation. Joseph is bringing his sons to be blessed by his Hebrew father. His sons were in this precarious situation where they were half Hebrew, half Egyptian. Their father, remember, he's the prime minister of the land. They could have followed him in his footsteps towards ruling over Egypt with power. That opportunity will vanish in this moment. Joseph is bringing his sons to Jacob to tell the whole world that they are siding with his father's side of the heritage. Like they're leaning in to Israel's trajectory and Israel's outcome. They're going to identify with that shepherd group of people, which if you remember, the Egyptians thought were abominations. The Egyptians wouldn't allow a Hebrew or a shepherd to eat at the same dinner table. As a father, Joseph is having his sons turn their back on the wealth and power of Egypt. Instead, he's putting all their trust and all their hopes of their future in God's hands. We'll pick up reading the text in 48 verse three with Jacob speaking to Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob says this, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you of a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. What is happening here is actually incredible. Two things, Jacob is actually adopting his grandsons. And he's also calling them into deep faith. So first he's adopting them. They will not be to to Jacob as grandsons, but as sons. A few verses later, Jacob will say, whose are these? Many scholars believe that's the formal beginning of an adoption ceremony. Like when a father, the bride, they ask the father, who gives this woman to be with this man? Kind of similar to that, whose are these? Joseph then gives the boys to his father bows down, that'd be seen as like a formal receiving of this adoption ceremony. Ephraim and Manasseh are now on equal footing as their uncles when it comes to the inheritance of the promised land in the future. To Joseph, this essentially means he's getting a double portion of the land with two sons as his representatives. The second thing is that in this act, Jacob is calling his grandsons to deep faith. He's telling them they get to have pieces of a promised land they've never seen. He is so convinced that God will get them out of Egypt and return them to the land that he's saying, hey, this is a part of your inheritance. This is yours. God is giving it to you. Hebrews 11.20 actually refers to this moment as the moment of faith in Jacob's life worth noting. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Let that be a word to you, mothers and fathers. Call your children to deep and glad faith in God that does not waver. Now the ceremony of blessing will continue and we'll see our third moment of raising up the next generation in verse 13. It says, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. Now you have to imagine before this, 
Before they walked in, Joseph went over this with his son. He's like, hey, Manasseh, you need to go under the right hand and Ephraim, you need to go under the left hand, okay? Stop doing that, focus. Left hand, right hand, okay? So they go in and this is the moment. Joseph wanted them in that way because the older son Manasseh would come under the right hand. The right hand was culturally significant as giving greater blessing, greater authority. And in, in the culture of the ancient Near East, all the people did was bless the oldest son. That's what you do. That's how we do family in the ancient Near East. The oldest son gets the best blessing. But Jacob, Grandpa Jacob, has a different idea in mind. Let's keep reading in verse 14. It says, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. He said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, what just happened? Well, Jacob crosses his arms, giving the, the larger blessing in his right hand to the younger son instead of the older. He blesses the boys recalling God's faithfulness to them as a family and he wants these boys to represent him to future generations. It's at this point that Joseph, he's either bowing down or he's like just in shock that his father is throwing away all these traditions. Uh, whatever it does, he snaps out of it. Uh, it literally translates, it was evil in his eyes, what his father was doing. And the idea of like snatching his hand is like my son Hank tried to put moon sand in his mouth the other day and I ran and I snatched his hand. I was like, don't you do that. Like that's the type of like snatch. Like it was just like instinct for him to remove the hand. He's trying to force the blessing to go the way he thinks it should go. Maybe this is because of Jacob's poor sight because he's old, but he won't budge. And he says, it's actually not because I can't see. This inversion of the blessing was on purpose. Jacob has been paying attention to how God operates not how the world operates. If you've noticed in Genesis, there's been a theme of the younger son being blessed over the older brother. It was the younger brother, Abel, who had his sacrifice accepted, not older brother, Cain. It was not Ishmael who had carried the blessing, but the second son, Isaac. It was not Esau, the eldest, but Jacob, the younger, who God would choose to use. And finally, at this moment in Genesis, we have a dad who follows God's lead. The blessing won't have to be stolen or denied, but instead it will be given in the way God desires it to. Now, I am not telling you to go fund your second born's college tuition 
and kick your firstborn out. That is not the takeaway. The point is that God is taking the values of the world and he's flipping them on their heads. He is inverting them. He has a different kingdom. He has different values. It's an upside down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. When we take a step back and we see these three moments of the next generation, seeing that God is their provider and being pulled into the pattern of his kingdom, we see that Joseph's boys identify with the family of God over the political powers of Egypt. Joseph's boys see the faith of their grandfather telling them of a land they've never seen. And Jacob shows them how God's kingdom is different. How does that apply to you and to me? I think the first place is just to point out how radical Joseph and Jacob are with how they disciple the next generation. Do we operate like that? Do we call our kids to turn their backs on the power structures of the world and instead entrust their whole lives to God's provision and entrust their whole lives to the pattern of the kingdom? Do we speak with deep faith to them of a kingdom that is both now and not yet with conviction? Do we raise our kids in such a way that it actually shocks other people when they see it happening? What would it look like for Northway Church to be a place where we shape the next generation radically into the image of Jesus? I think in a place like Dallas, a good place to start with all the packed schedules and endless hurry would just be a bodden commitment as a family to the local church. I've been in youth ministry for a while. um, And while this by no means guarantees salvation or ease of parenting, there is something distinct and different about students and kids who's showing up the vast majority of Sundays and Wednesdays. Parents, when we plant our flag and prioritize the gathering and the preaching of God's word, singing together as a family, praying together with the people that we've covenanted with in the local church, you just, you can't convince me that God doesn't honor that. I don't, don't think that this call to the next generation doesn't apply to you. Our young people need to see that Jesus is sufficient over every type of life, every season. There's this weird thing where a parent can tell, say, hey, the Bible's God's word and it's true. And it's like in one ear and out the other. And then like a 24-year-old says, the Bible's God's word and it's true. And they're like, that's beautiful. <laughs> I've just never thought about it that way. Like you are so powerful. And it drives parents crazy, but it's just weirdly true. So do with that what you will, uh, but we need you. It's gonna take all of us to reach all of them. The second way this applies to us is that if you are a Christian in here, then you and I, like Manasseh and Ephraim, have been adopted. Due to the righteousness and wisdom of someone else, we have been given an inheritance that we shouldn't be able to touch. Jesus brings us to the Father and we are adopted through faith. We have been provided for because of the work of another. And even when you and I don't, seek God and change, even when you and, I are, when you and I are stingy, even when we lack gratitude and when we don't disciple the next generation, God has provided sufficient grace to cover us. We're still a part of his family because he's a wise and loving provider, amen? Doesn't that make you want to respond in obedience to him, like his kindness? Yeah, up to this point, I've not had to go back to those mentors and ask for cash to help financially. Uh, I think we've learned by the Lord's kindness how to better steward our resources. But even if I did have to go back, I don't have fear in my heart because those men are loving and those men are wise. Friends, 
this week, maybe don't be afraid to ask God for provision. He happens to be your sole provider and he also happens to infinitely love you. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Uh, We trust you. We thank you that when you saw us in our need, you didn't leave us alone. You who are rich became poor that we might know you. God, we just long for more of you. So for my friends who need provision this week, God, would you show yourself to be provider? For my friends in a dark season, would you show yourself to be kind? And would we leave here today in faith, convinced that you are our wise and loving provider? God, would we trust you? Help us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.